Okay, well, hi everyone. Um, Sherry and I want to welcome everybody tonight for a very special fiction, old and new. And first, I'm just going to read some information about Tannis Rideout. Um, Tannis Rideout was born in Belgium and was raised in Bermuda and Canada. She now resides in Toronto, Canada. She's a writer, a poet, and an environmental activist. Her first book of poetry, Delineation, was published in 2005, and from her website, tannisrideout.wordpress.com, this book is described as exploring the lives of comic book superheroines, which sounds really great. Um, her second book of poetry, Arguments with the Lake, was published in 2013, and later I hope that she'll tell us a little bit about this book. Um, Arguments with the Lake won second prize in the CBC Canadian Literary Awards. And of course, her wonderfully written and engrossing novel, Above All Things, which we all read for tonight's discussion, came out in 2012. Above All Things has been published in seven countries and has garnered much praise, including being long-listed for the prestigious Impact Dublin Literary Award. Tannis is also an activist. In 2005, she joined Sarah Harmer's I Love the Escarpments tour and read her poetry to bring awareness to the impact of quarrying on the Niagara Escarpment. She was named Poet Laureate for Lake Ontario in August 2006, and she also went on tour with Tragically Hip's Gore Downey to help promote awareness of the environmental issues affecting Lake Ontario. And as Sherry mentioned, she's going to be asking Tanis several questions, and then I have a few questions for her. And then we'll have plenty of time for everybody to ask her a question or make a comment about the book. So I will now turn it over to Sherry. Okay. Well, thank you, Tanis, for t coming tonight. We're looking forward to talking about this great book. Thanks for having me. Um, I wanted to say that, I, first of all, I like mountain climbing books anyway, and there was so much information in here, both fact as well as the uh, historical novel itself. I love the quote about mountain climbing just being suffering, and you have to be better at it than anyone else. <laughs> yeah. Is that how you see mountain climbing versus other sports? Um, yeah, I certainly did, for sure. Um, when I first started working on Above All Things, I um, had not done any climbing whatsoever, um, and I was certainly not, um, I, I was not very physically fit. I, I did not enjoy exercise, um, but in one of those weird things of, of life imitating art, um, since because since writing the book or through the research process and that kind of stuff, I started doing some climbing. I now do a lot of long-distance running. Um, I still find it suffering, but I guess I've, I've gotten better at sort of appreciating um, pushing my, myself physically and whatnot. But, um, yeah, I still think that sort of really high-altitude stuff, especially, you know, the weather and the cold and all of that, just, it sounds way too miserable for me. I, I can't. I can't really imagine putting myself through that stuff. <laughs> There's a limit to how much suffering you're willing to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand it a little bit more than I than I did when I started writing it, but I still uh -huh. find a lot of it pretty pretty insane. Well, I wondered um, as I was reading the book, I liked all the little subtleties about the characters. A couple of things that come to mind are when you mentioned how George 
His impatience was um, explained by the fact that he couldn't wait for the sugar to dissolve in his coffee. He had to start stirring it. <laughs> and the relationship between George and Sandy, it was never, it never had to be said. It was just in the writing itself, the father-son kind of relationship. But I was mm-hmm. wondering, did you like George Mallory? Is he somebody you would have wanted as a friend? I, I did, actually, when I first started writing the book, a big part of the reason I started writing it was because I, I got quite obsessed with, with George to begin with and, and really developed a huge crush on him. I would sort of joke with friends of mine at the time that if it was possible to be, possible to be in love with somebody who had been dead for 80-some-odd years then, <laughs> than I was. Um, and I think we've all definitely fallen in love with characters on the page of, you know, who oh, we sure. think they, sure. they are. So I think this is kind of the same thing. But I did, certainly at the beginning and, and sort of through the process of the book, of writing the book, fell out of love with him, um, mm-hmm. which I think is mm-hmm. important because in early drafts of the book, he was this very good, brave, important character but wasn't really very interesting um and as i kind of fell out of love with him i was able to make him more interesting and more complicated and a bit more selfish and more of a jerk and um so i did i sort of fell out of love with him throughout the process and actually sort of by the end of it i think i was quite a bit more um taken with sandy but um i still think oh to sit down with him and have a conversation he was by all accounts and incredibly charming and um, charismatic and yeah he'd be one of those people I would invite to to dinner for sure huh that's really interesting because yeah I thought you did a realistic job of portraying him with all his flaws so Mm -hmm. it didn't come across that you were in love with him which is probably a good thing (laughs) (laughs) did you feel that George was responsible for the disaster on the first expedition you just you personally? Yeah, no, no. Personally, I don't. It was, you know, they all they knew the risks, and you know, it was sort of easy, I think, to pin things on George because he was sort of the face of the expedition and sort of the name that people knew even at the time, and mm-hmm. and um, you know, and he he was part of of that accident, but. You know, as we know, even from this year on Everest, avalanche has happened. It, you know, it is part of the parcel of of this of climbing and this high altitude climbing in particular. And there have been all sorts of horrible um, disasters um, because of avalanches. Should he mm-hmm. have maybe known better? Maybe, but this was the Himalayas. It was a totally different thing than climbing in the Alps. It was the second time he'd been there. I think. Pinning it to any one person is, um, yeah, it's pretty unfair in, in that circumstance. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, I was wondering how Ruth supported the family in his absence. Did he get some kind of stipend mm-hmm. from the National Geographic Society or something? Because I didn't get the impression no. they were wealthy. No? They were, wow. They, they, were, they were fairly well-to-do. Uh, Ruth came from actually a fairly wealthy family, and so she had um, an income from her father that helped mm-hmm. to um, let them live at a certain level. Um, they would have been, you know, what we would consider nowadays, I think, sort of upper middle class um, mm-hmm. in that. Um, you know, they had help. They had, um, you know, servants that, that helped. And um, in order to even go on these kinds of expeditions, you had to be self-sufficient. They paid their own way to go 
all of the men that went on the expeditions had to pay to go. Um, they would be given wow. slight from um, from the Royal Geographical Society to uh, cover some of their equipment, but it was very much a gentleman's sport um, at the time, uh-huh. and it was you know, part of your duty to to go and do these things. And um, I think you know, compared to some of the other expedition members, um, George wasn't quite as well off, um, but he could he could afford to do this, and largely because of Ruth. Um, family income, because prior to that, he had worked as a teacher, which we all know, or, you know, they're good jobs, but they don't pay insanely well, um, yeah, but yeah. Uh, they were, um, they they did have this other income from, from her family, so um, it was, it was always tight, but it was something that they were able to do, uh, versus, you know, another family who, if he had just been a teacher and they didn't have another income, um, probably he wouldn't have been able to afford to do any of the climbing that he did, really. Wow. It was interesting when they came to tell Ruth that he had died or had disappeared that she didn't even ask if he had, you know, finished climbing and made the summit or not. I was kind of sad, like she almost had given up or didn't care. Um, What happened to the daughters in later life? Um, they went on, um, all three of the children went on, uh, as far as I know, to marry happily. I think that um, the son is still alive, I believe, and actually one of the daughters maybe as well. Um, okay. And I know that, um, in fact, I think it's with his son, John's son, um, actually summited Everest. Um, oh, wow. Right. Yeah, I think in the, I want to say the... 80s or 90s, but I'm not entirely sure on that. But um, yeah, so the climbing sort of stayed in the family for sure. But by all accounts, they went on to have quite a happy childhood. Ruth, by um, sort of everything I read, was still a very wonderful and happy mother and was really supportive of, of her children being ambitious and brave. She didn't kind of shut them down and kind of try and keep them safe in a way that I think might be a, a normal reaction for someone else. And they were also yeah. encouraged to kind of to still try and be adventurous and that kind of thing. So, you know, aside oh. from this kind of, you know, horrible black cloud at the the beginning of, you know, they were all very young. Um, mm-hmm. They, yeah, by by my understanding, they, they lived really quite happy lives. Well, that's good to know. It was nice to see that she ended up with somebody at the end of the book. I'm glad you put it in an epilogue. That's always nice. Yeah. (laughs) Do you know if Sandy's body has ever been found? I know George's has, but I don't remember if they've actually brought George's body down or not, but I don't remember reading anything about Sandy. They haven't. They found George's body in, I think, I want to say 2001, thereabouts anyway, and um, they actually thought that they were looking for Sandy's body for whatever reason. I think because mountaineers also sort of hold George up in this particular light and nobody ever really thought they could possibly find his body. And um, so they, yeah, they found his body, um, but it wasn't really the body that they were looking for. There's this a story of a Chinese climber, I believe, from um, in the 70s who uh-huh. claimed to have seen an old English body um, on the mountain, and he described the body as being dressed in brown tweeds and curled up kind of in a fetal position. And um, 
the, you know, as these things go, the, the climber who claimed to have seen this was killed the next day on the mountain in the avalanche. And so there's, there was no kind of other recording of this other than just him telling one of the climber, oh, I saw this body. And so that's always, that had been always the, the thought, oh, we'll find that body and it will be George or Sandy. But when they found George's body, um, he was lying prone. He wasn't on his side. So um, mm. there's, there's still the belief that, that Sandy's body is, is there somewhere. And every once in a while there's talk about sending up another expedition. And I know there's, they're actually doing a lot of um, sort of satellite photography because that's come mm-hmm. so far um, uh, to sort of see if they can kind of spot it um, from satellites. So I think people oh, are, you know, hold, hold out hope um, that they'll, they'll find him. And then he'll, of course, have the camera um, in his pocket and we'll finally know what happens. But oh, man. <laughs> that would be awesome, although it's hard to imagine the film would be good at this point, but you never know. Yeah. yeah. Um, late in the book, um, there's an incident where I think George's brother mentions that he got in trouble in the military because he was climbing a wall. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Um. I think it's that the oh, he was injured. That was it. Yeah. yeah, he hurts his ankle, right? And yes, that right, is that right. is something that he had always complained of ever since, and was sort of has always been held up as one of those stories of like his impetuousness and um, yeah, that he sort of he should have known better than to try and climb this very soft sandstone wall, um, mm-hmm. and then uh, yeah, sprained his ankle quite quite terribly, and also didn't take care of it afterwards. He refused to kind of recover properly. And then that wow. plagued him um, for the rest of his life, and that's why he was sent home from the front lines during the First World War, because his ankle just never healed properly. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just kind of one of those nice character details. And certainly as a novelist, you, you hang so much of a character on those kind of small moments that show you so much about, about a person. Oh, yeah. You should have known that but he did it anyway. And like you said, it just goes to show how impetuous he was, and uh, hmm. some people would say careless, other people would say Absolutely. impetuous. But you know. yeah. Do you think his war, was he, like, did he feel guilty for not finishing out World War One and, and coming home early for an injury? Or I think so. I, I think, you know, most, Men at that at that time um, did really. Most people felt that sort of real drive to be part of the war effort and to do whatever they could. And he was actually because he was a teacher had been um, excused for a very long time. He was um, thought to be part of the um, the war effort at home, um, mm-hmm. as lots of people, doctors and what have you, that people would, they needed to have on the the home front to continue doing the necessary jobs at home and. Um, and he kept applying over and over and over again to be given a, a reprieve from that so he could go sooner and eventually was called up. And, uh, yeah, it didn't serve that long um, before he, he was sent home. And I think, um, I, I think he was quite um, humiliated by, by yeah. that, as a lot of men were. You know, you hear those stories all the time that, you know, men who had flat feet or, or whatever had asthma yep. and, couldn't, and couldn't serve and how... Um, given sort of the the patriotism and all of that at the time, um, were very you know felt like they were less than men for not being able to to do their their duty. I think we look back at that differently now, but at the time, mm-hmm. it was um, it must have felt like a, a real blow 
to not be able to to stand next to your, you know, your fellow men, your comrades, and, and um, stand up for your country the way that everybody else was. Um, yeah. And I think he probably carried that with him um, and would have been part of the driving force on Everest. That makes totally, yeah, yeah totally makes yeah. sense. Um, I recently read an article about some women Sherpas. This was before this last kerfuffle with the... Um, mm-hmm. With all the uh, Sherpas striking or whatever, yeah. and uh, they were talking about you know trying to be Sherpas in a man's world and stuff. I mean, you had some women Sherpas in the Sherpa book, but I wasn't sure if they were really Sherpas or just wives and helpers. Yeah, I actually because I come across that and there's the one specific woman. Oh, well, there's lots of women at the base camp sort of helping to kind of take care of base camp, which would be like you know tending the fires or you know making tea or, or what have you, which we think of as being women's work anyway. And, mm-hmm. uh, but I had remembered reading early on, on in my research um, that on one particular climb there was a, a female porter who carried her 40-pound load along with a child that she was breastfeeding, and I had put that into the book. And, mm-hmm. and um, people had asked me, they were like, really, has that really happened? I was like, yes, I'm sure that I read that somewhere. I'm sure that I read that somewhere. And over the last couple of months, I've been um, tweeting the the expedition because it's the um, it was the 90th anniversary of the expedition on on Sunday. It was the 90th anniversary of of the day they tried to summit the mountain and disappeared. And oh. Um, oh. as I was kind of just going through and building a timeline, so I could just kind of tweet these things out, um, I came across the the section in in the expedition book that talks about this woman. Um, carrying her 40-pound load and also the child that she was breastfeeding. So according to the official records, there was at least one woman um, that didn't didn't climb high, but certainly went part of the way up and was doing the job that all of the men were doing and breastfeeding and carrying her child while doing it. And probably making dinner, too. (laughs) Probably, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to turn it over to Michelle now for her questions. Sure. So, uh, thanks again. Thank you. Okay. Um, well, I have to say there were so many wonderful dramatic moments in this story, and one of the moments that stood out for me was when George Mallory was talking with Dr. Somerville, and Teddy Norton had just been stricken with snow blindness, and Dr. Somerville was saying that he couldn't breathe, that he felt like he, had, had a, he was going to perform a tracheotomy on himself, and I'm thinking with all this going on, George still wants a chance to reach the summit. And, I, you know, I thought if it was me, I would, you know, want to turn around and go home. What do you think it was about him that made him want to push the, the limits of human endurance? Yeah, I was, um, I was asked recently at a, at a book club event, what, what do I think would have happened if George had come home? And so I think this is kind of the same, the same question. And I, and I hadn't really thought about it that way before. I hadn't thought, oh, what if he did come home? And I think even if, even if, he, if he hadn't climbed it, he would have wanted to go back. There was no way he was going to let somebody else climb Everest without him. And if he had climbed it, he would have gone on and found something else to do. He would have gone to the Antarctic. He would have gone to the Andes. He would have climbed K2. It would have been something. Um, mm-hmm. he, 
it wasn't like he was going to just suddenly stay at home and be a dad and a teacher. Um, and it, so I think there's just something in him. There are these, you know, there are these people that you meet that are just driven in that way. And I, it is still something that, that, that I puzzle over, you know, as I sort of jokingly said, you know, um, exercise is something I've recently become acquainted with. And, right, you know, yeah. I, have, I have a new appreciation for suffering. I just signed up for my first marathon in the, in the fall. And, um, you know, and there's something very wonderful about having gone through that process and being done it um, mm-hmm. that feels really great. Um, but I still, I still don't understand it. I, you know, like I, I, I don't, and I've talked to climbers, and they try and articulate it, articulate about how beautiful it is, and all of that sort of stuff. But, um, but it was, it was just, it was him. It was how he was built. It was how he, you know, thought of himself, and it was this. I need to do this, and it took up all of his brain space. <laughs> it was all there was. Mm-hmm. It was all there was for. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's exactly right because I think that some people are just exactly what you're saying. They're they're built that way. Um, I had really complicated feelings about his marriage to Ruth. Um, at one point, she said something like, "You know, some days it feels like all she does is wait." And, you know, and then there were other scenes where you could see the, the romance that they had, the, the deep feelings that they had for each other. Um, what did you think of their marriage? What was, what was you know, you read all the letters and you, and you really mm-hmm. had a great sense of, you know, did you feel it was a complicated marriage? or? I, I think it really was. I think they actually, um, I think they really loved each other. And that was really quite evident in in the letters. And I think that they were very careful with each other. And they were very kind to each other. And one of the things that surprised me when I was reading the letters was um, that they they would talk about their relationship. And they would talk about what kind of parents they wanted to be and what kind of um, what kind of husband and wife they wanted to show to their children and how to sort of model what a good relationship was. And I, that's all struck me as being very modern. Um, mm-hmm. like if you, you know, I feel like we all talk about that. We all, like, yeah. analyze our relationships yeah. to death. But we don't think about people doing that in the teens and 20s. And I think they were very modern. Um, but I think that they they liked each other and they loved each other and for all of that you know Everest and climbing took him away from her that was that was of course part of what she loved about him and um and I think that unfortunately their marriage ended or was ended um in yeah when when they weren't at at their best with each other their their letters towards the end are still very careful and kind to each other, but they were both very aware that neither of them were being as kind or good to the other one as they wanted to be, because they were mm-hmm. just such mm-hmm. loggerheads. She really wanted him to stay, and he really wanted to go, and she wrote over and over again about how sorry she was that she hadn't been more supportive, hadn't been as kind, hadn't been as good as, as she could have been, and he sort of said all of the same things, and to even mm-hmm. in, in that intensely painful time be thinking about the other person I think I don't know I think we should all hope for those kinds of marriages yeah and I think that you know that's what we we all try and balance out as well you know that 
how how do you find room to be yourself in your relationship and how do you let your partner go off and do what they need to do in your relationship and still find a way to be together. It's, it's um, yeah, I, I think that's a very normal thing that, you know, it's never, hopefully, for most of us, it's not on the extreme of Everest, but right. you know, taking, writing a novel takes up a lot of time and going out and promoting your novel, you know, takes up a lot of time. And so to kind of claim that time from my marriage is, you know, is a negotiation with my, with my husband and mm-hmm. vice versa. Yeah, I, I think it's a very it, it's a problem that a, that everybody can identify with. Exactly, how do you retain your identity and be part of a, a you know be a spouse, be a father? It's 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 a very it's a very relatable situation. This is an extreme one where he's he's climbing Everest, but you're right. It's exactly the same thing. Um, another relationship that was really interesting was George's relationship with his father, the Reverend. And there was that, that one scene where the Reverend wanted his congregation to pray for George, and George was not thrilled about that. And he said something, which I, I guess I didn't really understand if he was rebelling against his father when he said this. He said, Everest is proof, a proof enough against God. Is that what you think he meant by that? I think I, George's relationship with his father is one of the more fictionalized parts of, of the book, but certainly, mm-hmm. certainly my George. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, it's really struggling with um, with faith and how how can a God exist that would, you know, create this kind of place. And, um, you know, and Everest represents a particular kind of hell for him. And, um, and I think it is, you know, it is partially a struggle against his father, in particular his father represents faith, George, they did. He did want George to follow in his footsteps. The Mallorys had been um, reverends at that particular church for decades, if not centuries, and mm-hmm. and um, he he walks away from it. And so I think there must have been um, some conflict uh, around that. And he hung out. George hung out with the Bloomsbury's in that particular intellectual set that were all. They were all mostly atheists and. Um, you know, so I think it certainly must have been ideas that he was toying with, even if he never definitively sat on one side or the other. Um, and I think that um, that the mountain was his particular test, and he was at such odds with the mountain. He was, you know, he was at war with Everest. Um, that he, you know, how yeah, how could a god have made anything this? horrible that is just kind of trying to kill you at every, at every sort of turn um, and uh, yeah just trying to kind of reconcile that and yeah and also a bit of a you know screw you to his dad because um, yeah certainly in, in the novel um, his relationship with his father is, is pretty antagonistic yeah no, that's, that's yeah. really interesting really. that actually um one of the parts, one of the, one of the many things that I liked about your book was you really described vividly, I think, what altitude sickness is. Um, and I'm just going to read something that you wrote, which is you described it as the most terrible influenza you've ever had, like something horrible sitting on your chest, ripping at it. Everything just hurts your joints, your bones, even your skin. 
and the only way to end it is to climb the bloody mountain. And it's so vivid, right? And it's so evocative. I mean, I, I've had horrible, horrible flu. I, I can't imagine that it was as bad as, as this, but... Um, and I just wondered about just about that whole, you know, how did they deal with the altitude sickness and, and also about the decision about using oxygen tanks? Um, you know, it seemed like it was a really big issue at the time, and they all seemed to have different opinions about it. Um, yeah, it's such a weird question because nowadays, of course, you know, 99.9% of people certainly mm-hmm. climb Everest, mm-hmm. let alone any other high high mountains, um, are using oxygen. It's just kind of a, a given at this point in time. Um, they're, you know, they're the odd person that, you know, will do a really quick gasless dash to the summit and, and down, but they're very few and far between these days. And um, we just kind of take it for granted that that's just part yeah. of the climbing yeah. process. And um, interestingly, just as I was, just as the book was coming out here in Canada, um, the um, Lance Armstrong um, story all kind of finally blew mm-hmm. up, and uh, and it's kind of an interesting parallel the the steroids and, and the oxygen at the time, and you know, because Lance Armstrong's whole argument was like was kind of like, well, everybody was doing yeah. it. Yeah, right, so, like in baseball, yeah. Yeah, and, and in some ways, you know, I sort of hear his point of, like, if everyone has the same tools, and I don't obviously, you know, he had a better team, blah, 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 but putting that aside, if we were to talk about the notion of, oh, well, legalizing it and making it okay that, you know, people could, you know, dope and, on the Tour de France, then, and everybody's still kind of starting with the same level playing field, um, then kind of what's so, what's so bad about it. And I don't think there's a direct link between the two of them, but I think there's a similar kind of argument um, mm-hmm. in, certain, in terms of what um, the Englishmen were thinking in the, in the 20s, that it was really just seen in, in, as being horribly unsporting, that if you were going to climb the mountain, you had to climb it, and that this was, this was a false aid. This was, you know, it was no longer you climbing the mountain. Um, mm-hmm. And then there was, you know, the other side of it. There was just like, well, we used ropes and we used, you know, ice axes right. and crampons and warm clothes. So what's the difference? It's just another tool. And um, But it was. It was an actual real massive debate. Yeah. And there would have, I'm sure, if they had come back having climbed the mountain with oxygen, there would have been numerous people who went, yes, but they used oxygen, so it doesn't really count. Um, and it's, you know, it's a debate that kind of went on and, you know, once Hillary finally summited in the 50s, um, and it was kind of just at that point in time, it was like, okay, this is the only way to do it. And it was, I think, until the 80s, I think, was the first time somebody climbed it without oxygen. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was a real moral question at the time. And it, but mm-hmm. it was also a technical question. They didn't actually know whether it would work or how, or how useful it would be. I mean, people had just started flying airplanes regularly not that long before. And um, they really were, were charting a new science for high altitude and figuring out yeah. what yeah. worked and what didn't. And was, they, you know, they were still, this is, they were still recommending that you have a cigarette after you got up to your high camp to clear right, your mind. Yeah. <laughs> like this is something that you know George actually had written in in his in his diaries that like oh a cigarette makes you feel better after your climb mm-hmm. at however 
thousands of seeds. So, um, so the science was a little bit doggy at the time, but um, but it was it was a real it was a real battle. And George shifted lines being on the first two expeditions. He was very much against oxygen, and I think once he realized it was really going to be his only shot, he was willing to to take it. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it does really seem like a real medical issue from your descriptions. I mean, it just seems like. Your body is, is screaming for oxygen, so I, mean, you know, I, I, I would think. Um, so Ruth actually talked a little bit about the Everest fever in Britain, where there were newspaper articles about mm-hmm. what the climbers wore and what they ate. And, of course, you know, you think about all the, the paparazzi and, and all the, you know, the stuff on the, in the newspaper all the time. Was it kind of like that at the time about Everest? Was there a real frenzy about it? There, there was, and I think, you know, again, it's coming right after the First World War, and there was, um, you know, Britain was still really back on its heels, and um, they'd lost, you know, so many men, as had, you know, everybody in, in Europe and even here, and um, and they were still really kind of suffering, and, you know, I think that it very much felt like a place that was losing its grasp in that at one point in time, they ruled the world. They were the empire on which the sun never set. And that mm-hmm. seems to be drifting away from them. Um, and that was such a point of pride for the English. And so I think this, this thing, and, you know, both poles had been claimed and not by Englishmen. And here was kind of this opportunity to grab something back. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it was, you know, it was made into... A big deal and was covered in the papers and there were huge talks and um, they would go and meet with the royal family before they went and all this sort of thing. They were actually, they were given Olympic medals for the 1922 expedition, I believe. And um, yeah, it really was um, a a big deal as it was still even in the 50s. um, The timing of Hillary's ascent in 1953 coincided with... um, Elizabeth's coronation, and it was, you know, like trumpeted as, you know, the new crown jewel in in, um, in her crown. So um, it was. I think it was very much this, like, this desire to prove that England was still the England that everybody had fought for so desperately, um, and it was yeah. something to rally yeah. behind, um, and something they thought they could do. Well, I, I'm going to ask one final question, and then we'll um, switch to the group because I know everybody has okay. has questions for you. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your writing regimens, and also a little bit about your latest book, Arguments with the Lake. Sure. Uh, well, I'm lucky enough at the moment that um, I get to write full time. I've been doing it for a couple of years now, and um, it's uh, yeah. So I, you know, Monday to Friday, I sit down in front of my computer and try and write things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in the process of a new novel, um, which is going quite slowly. Um, but yeah, I generally kind of set myself a word limit for for writing. So at the moment, I have to write a thousand words a day, and some okay. days that takes me from nine till five, and other days it takes me a couple hours, and then I, you know, get to sit and read or do research or what have you, but. Um, yeah, I try and do it on a, on a daily basis. So, you know, I believe that, you know, inspiration is nice, but your butt better be in a chair when that happens or it yes. doesn't count for that. <laughs> right. so, um, yeah, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm pretty lucky to be able to just get to do it at the moment and not have to try and balance it, balance it out. But uh, I try not to be too precious about it either. 
I can work almost anywhere and have um, and just yes, get words on page and then hopefully make something out of it down the road. But um, and yeah, I put out my second book of poetry I guess a year ago now almost and. Um, is based that was actually ends up being quite closely related to above all things. It was based on Marilyn Bell's um, swim across Lake Ontario. She was the first person to ever swim across the lake um, mm-hmm. in 1956, I think, and she was 16 years old. And um, uh, yeah, I was sort of writing about her swimming and kind of realizing, oh, I'm back to this sort of physical struggle against this, you know, massive. A natural force and having to kind of keep pushing and overcoming and um, that book grew out of uh, my relationship with a charity here in Toronto called Lake Ontario Waterkeeper that um, promotes environmental justice on Lake Ontario mm-hmm. and I just mm-hmm. started writing about the lake and about what it meant to me and started digging into the history of it and some of the stories about the lake and yeah I came across Marilyn and had to write about her. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. It was so interesting hearing, you know, all about about the book. And now, Ron, can you switch us to the computer room? I, I don't. I don't hear anybody trying to talk. Are we on? Yes, John. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, can I? Am I on now? Yes, you are. Uh, this is Ginny. I can hear you, John. Um, and Don, I think we've lost maybe a Sherry and Michelle and our author. We're here. We're here, Ginny. Okay, I'll jump in here. I didn't hear the little thing that says who's who's speaking, sir. So I was a little confused. Uh, I like this book a lot. I haven't read much about mountain climbing, uh, but uh, the hardships of the whole thing were were just in, incredible to me. Uh, I'm glad one thing that you did that I think authors should do, because I've read a lot of recently several historical novels based on true things, and I, I, I really like the fact that you put a note at the end kind of telling us what you made up and what how you researched it. I think that's very important in a book like the, like this. At the beginning of the book, and maybe this this is obvious, and but but it kind of struck me, I think it's when... George and the climbers were talking about maybe when they were on the ship or something, and they talked about um, Everest. That the pronoun they used wasn't it; they referred to the mountain as her and she. Uh, I don't know that that came up any time later, but uh, is that the way they kind of thought about the mountain as as feminine? Hi. Okay. Can I go ahead? Yep. Okay, great. So, so I sorry, I was breaking up a little bit, but I think I got got most of it. Um, so I think, um, yeah, the stuff about the fact versus fiction is always interesting. Um, some people get really upset when you change things in a novel, and other people don't care. I'm of the I don't really care so much variety, but um, but specifically the question about the um, yeah the pronoun of the mountain, um, George specifically almost always refers to the mountain as her as she sometimes not quite so kindly um and um um it it did happen there is you know there is some um 
precedent for that. And, you know, quite often the language of conquering is, you know, is the language of, of sex and of, you know, rape and that kind of thing, unfortunately. Um, but, but specifically in the novel, using um, her and she just kind of helped to strengthen this idea of, of the love triangle that existed between um, George and Ruth and the mountain. And, um, and, you know, he has this affair in New York, but that affair kind of doesn't mean anything. It's this affair he's having with this mountain that's, that's the big deal. This is the, that's the mistress that, um, that is tempting him away. Um, so, um, yeah, there definitely um, are instances of Everest um, being called female, and even the, the, the Tibetan and um, Nepali names for the mountain are female. She is the mother goddess of the, of the earth. Um, but uh, for George, it's, it's amplified to kind of high, heighten that um, sort of sexual tension, really, between, between the three of them. Ron, I think maybe the computer room is not coming in as loud as normal. Is it possible to raise the volume at all? Because I could barely hear John when he was talking. Okay, I'll try it higher. Thanks. Uh, Don, we uh, we couldn't hear your question at all. I don't know if your mic is coming in. Don, if you, you want to type or... something, if you press F8 and type it, I can read it. Does anyone Ginny, else have any you... questions? I think Ginny... I'd like to know why you felt it was important to have this sex scene in the sexual relationship in New York. Uh, were there notes that indicated that that, was, that really happened or just other things that made you think that he did have affairs like this? Um, you know, for a couple of that loved each other so much, was he just mad because she didn't go to New York with him, do you think? Um, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question. I, I do fundamentally think that George Mallory was probably a man who had more than one dalliance um, in his time. Um, where the, the story with Stella specifically comes from is um, when they found George's body um, in 2001, uh, they went through everything that was on it, and they, there was an envelope that was found addressed to George um, from a woman named Stella. And um, the, the question, of course, was like, well, who is this woman? Why was he carrying this letter from her on his body? Like, who could she possibly be? And um, it's been pretty much debunked. Like, it turns out that there were notes and calculations written on the back of it. It was just an envelope 
there was no letter, if it had really meant something to him, he probably would have taken her letter and not just an envelope he had scratched things on. So there's not um, any necessary, uh, necessary proof that he had an affair with a woman named Stella. But as a novelist, um, it's too good to turn up. And I do think, again, it, it speaks a little bit to the impetuousness of his character and his need for thrill um, and his desire for love. He has this whole thing about talking about love and life um, with Will at one point in time of just wanting to feel and try and taste everything. And I, I do think that that is very much who he was. Um, and I don't think he would have thought of it as something that would have hurt his wife because she wouldn't have known um, which I hope is a very outdated notion, but um, I think um, it was a more prevalent notion than, um, than it is now. Looks like Jenny had a question. Yes, hi. I really loved reading the book. Um, I have read Into Thin Air, and I also have read a book called The Savage Summit, I think, which talks about women mountain climbers. And I think when you use this uh, fictionalized kind of... Um, style, it makes the flow a little easier um, than maybe fact-based. Um, I was wondering if I personally love research, and what I love is when you can find an untold story, and in a lot of books, they don't tell about the, um, the home life of the people who are left behind while these people pursue their passions, and I wonder if there were um, any particular authors that influenced you in the way you structured the book, or any favorite authors you have, and do you like historical fiction best? Yeah, I love research as well. If I could just spend all of my time researching and not have to write a book, I would be more than happy to do that. Um, but unfortunately, people want a book at the end of all the research. Uh, but I could spend, you know, months and months and years doing the research stuff. Um, and, uh, no, I totally agree. That was part of why I wanted to, to structure the story the, the way it was, was because... Um, I was interested in Ruth's story. I was interested in a woman who would have been married to this man, and it's, you know, it's a very fashionable thing now all of a sudden to tell these stories about the woman behind the man. Um, it, but it hadn't been when I got started. Um, and uh, in terms of, of how it was structured, Ruth's day in particular is, is um, structured slightly um, along the lines of a room of one, not a room of one, but um, Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf um, certainly gave the... Um, the starting point for her hosting a dinner party, it being a single day in her life, there being a terrible crisis, that kind of thing. Um, and then sort of the, the slipping back and forth between the two of them. Um, I do like stories that alternate um, points of view or times, um, that kind of thing. Um, I would say Michael Andante was one of the first writers that I read that, um, that was doing that kind of thing when I first started paying attention, that I really loved how he sort of slipped back and forth between different characters and sort of built up a world as opposed to this kind of straight ahead, this happens, this happens, this happens kind of idea. We've got a question from Don up in the window there, Michelle. Yes. Um, let's see. What did he He wrote, what did the author think about Ruth as a character with little to do with her time having two servants? 
God, yeah, oh, this difficult. Um, I, I, yeah, which kind of comes back to, to the Virginia Woolf um, thing, because uh, I struggled with Ruth for a long time, because her, her world was so circumscribed, and, and George's story is this massive, epic thing that, you know, goes from London to New York to the Himalayas over, you know, a six-month period, and it's epic, and there are avalanches, and people are dying, and it's, it's huge. And then Ruth's world is so small and so calm, and she does have very little to do because she has two servants, so she can't even take up her time taking care of her children or, or you know, making dinner or any of those things. So once we, my editor and I decided to give her this dinner party um, to, to throw, it, it gave some structure to her day. It gave some direction. And Ruth is, Ruth is the heart of the story. It's because we see Ruth and we see the children and we see most of their relationships, the, the back um, story of their relationships through Ruth. Um, then we know what it is that George and therefore all the other men are risking on the mountain. We know what's at stake because we have Ruth there in this tiny, quiet, calm little world. And um, without her there, the, the jeopardy on the mountain is, is not as stark. Like, yeah, we, we fear for them because we don't want them to die, but we don't really know what it is that they're potentially losing. Um, but it did. It took a long time. And, and Ruth is a pretty divisive character. Some, some people hate her. They find her pathetic because she doesn't do anything. And I think she does as much as she can with what she's given. Well, she seems to be a woman of her, her time and class. Exactly. It just seems like, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you but, see yeah, women like exactly her in other, in other novels. Exactly. Um, Don also wrote a, a second question, so let me just read it. It says, um, also, I understand she waited 13 years to marry Will. Was it because of the children? No, actually, uh, Will had been married as well, and um, shortly after his wife died um, was when they, they finally got together, and quite, quite quickly after that. And then, unfortunately, they weren't together very long before Ruth passed away. Um, so, yeah, she, she didn't have necessarily the happiest life, but they did have some time together. Um, but he was always a good, steadfast friend to her all through her relationship with George and then even beyond. Does anyone else in the room have any other questions or comments? Ginny's raised. Yes, hi. Um, this is just a brief question on how uh, George saw the indigenous people that were helping him. There's one scene that I remember not very distinctly where someone was, I think, approaching him with some compensation for one of the chirpers, I think, that had died. And he seems kind of, you know, grudging, a little bit ambivalent, like, well, as if... And I'm not sure how he perceived the indigenous people that helped. And I also wonder, you know, how you have Mount Everest, which has been there forever. Um, were there any indigenous people that we think may have gotten to the summit apart from, you know, white people? Right. Yeah, the, um, the relationship with the, um, the Sherpas is, is pretty complicated. Um, and George is, um, he, like, he's a jerk to them as you know, he's a jerk to most people in the book, I think. But um, it was a very paternalistic relationship. Again, this is sort of the last gasp of, of the Great British Empire. They, you know, they 
had a colony in India for however long, um, they were used to and thought it was their right and their duty to take care of these people. And so it was just very, they referred to them as children, basically. And so they thought it was their job to take care of them, but also to use them, to work hard for them. Um, and the, even the language in the book is split. So George and the, most of the older um, members of the expedition refer to the Sherpas as coolies in this very dismissive, um, racist way. And Sandy refers to them as Sherpas, and I wanted to, you know, indicate that hopefully even at the time there was starting to be a bit of a shift um, in the thinking um, about that. Um, but in terms of whether or not anybody um, from the Sherpa, whether sort of on the Tibetan side or the Nepali side, uh, would have um, attempted or even summited the mountain first, um, they, they wouldn't have. For them, for them, the mountain was sacred, um, is sacred. Um, it, it isn't just where um, the mother goddess lives. It is the mother goddess. And they thought it was utterly reprehensible that these Englishmen were going to go. And they were sort of, some of them were pretty much conscripted to, to go along and help. Um, so they just wouldn't have. It just it wasn't it wasn't their culture. It wasn't their view. It was, the mountain wasn't something that you climbed, um, unlike in European cultures. That just wasn't how they, they viewed it. They didn't view it as something to be conquered, um, the way that um, the Western world did. Um, I think John had his hands up, and I don't know if Joni or Bob wanted to say something. I, I, John is raising his hand now. One of the flashbacks uh, was a little confusing to me, uh, and it seemed to be, okay, George was involved bef before with these writers. Uh, I think it was uh, Strachey and the Bloomsbury people. But in one of the flashbacks, it, he seemed to be very upset that this relationship, either he did something to them or they did something to him uh, to destroy this relationship. And I, I couldn't follow really what that was all about. Sure. So it's um, the relationship with, um, with Lighten, I think. Or James. No, James Tracy. Uh, Lighten's his brother. And um, the... What it seems to be from uh, from the letters that exist is that George went at his time in Cambridge. Um, so yeah, took up with this this group that would eventually become sort of the Bloomsbury set, and um, he fell in love with James Strachey and um, probably had an affair with him. And um, and James broke his heart. And there are some of the most devastating broken-hearted letters from George to James in the British Library. Um, just like pleading with him to let him see him and all of this sort of stuff. And it was it, there, something that was much more present in earlier travel, um, but you kind of have to make your choices when you're, when you're writing, it, writing a book about what works to bolster a relationship and what doesn't, and it just kind of muddied the water around his relationship with Ruth, and so it got sort of pulled back and pulled back till it's just kind of this sort of underlying current in the book, and he does have that one 
scene with Will where he talks about love and wanting love and wanting to try everything and, and James being kind of the focus for that and that even though he's devastatingly heartbroken, um, what he, he wants that as well. He doesn't want to kind of be sheltered and, and safe and um, so it's, it's, it's there. Uh, not as much as I would have liked it to have been at one point in time, but uh, yeah, he had some quite a scandalous past, George Mallory. <laughs> Anybody else in the room have any comments? Um, I don't. I don't see Bob or Joni raising their hands. Okay. I know it's almost ten o'clock now, right? Yeah, I think we can probably wind down then, and uh, I'll mention what our next book is. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Tannis, for attending Thank this. You. This book was great. Uh, we'll definitely so be much. watching for your other books to show up. And for our next book, guys, um, the next book will be the third Tuesday in July because I'm going to be out of town the second one. And it's State of Wonder by Ann Patchett. And I'm putting it up in the chat window. The DB number is 73464. And it's about um, a woman a pharmacologist, I think is her title, she goes to the Amazon to investigate the disappearance of another pharmacy person that's down there working on this new wonder drug for the company she's working in. So most of the book takes place in the Amazon with the other people that are down there working on this drug as well as the locals. Um, and it'll be on July 15th at the usual time. Well, Tannis, thank you so much. This book was was so it was it was so interesting listening to you talk about you know all the decisions that you made in the writing, and you can tell that you did a tremendous amount of research. You probably could have written four books about (laughs) this, all the different stories, and and it was the characters were so interesting. I I would love if you would write another book about some of the other characters in depth. So. Maybe one day we'll we'll see that okay. as well. But thank you so much. It was a real honor Thanks and a privilege to meet you. Before you hang up, though, Tannis, uh, I noticed John had his hand up in the air. John, did okay. you have another question? Going to, I was just going to say that I have read State of Wonder. It's a very good book, a little complicated. Uh, unfortunately, I'll be at the ACB convention on the 15th, so I won't be part of it, but I think uh, you will enjoy the book. And- Tennis, I really want to tell you how much I enjoyed your uh, conversation tonight, and um, and I love the way you write. Really did a good job on this book. Unfortunately, I was not able to finish it, but now you gave me more impetus to go back and finish it. So thank you so much.